Hello there, this is Fiona, host and main GM for What Am I Rolling, a twice-monthly RPG one-shot podcast. This is a bonus Q&A episode to tide us over to the next one-shot, and it is indeed a very special Q&A, as this week I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing comic book writer Kieran Gillen about his work Die, the RPG, a bleak fantasy tabletop role-playing game based on the comic book series of the same name, also made by Kieran Gillen and Stephanie Hans. In Die, you play a group of authentically flawed and desperate real-world people known as Personas, who are then sucked into a cursed role-playing game and take on the form of heroes, villains, and power players known as Paragons. Some of you might want to get back to the real world or whatever's waiting for you there. Some of you might want to stay in a reality where you can finally get what you want out of life. The catch is that you all have to agree on whether to stay or go. I really love chatting to Kieran and discussing his passion for tabletop RPGs. I recently got to run a game of Die for the podcast and oh my goodness, it was so good. I'm hoping to get that out on the channel ASAP, but seriously, if you love games which go a little bit meta, get into the nitty gritty and really explore those deeply flawed characters that you love in challenging situations, go and check it out. It's also beautifully illustrated and is published by our friends at Rowan Rook and Picard. I'll put a link to where you can get Die and Kieran's other work in this episode's show notes. I'll just just start very generally. Um, who are you and what do you do? Hi, uh, my name's Kieran Gillen. I, in my day job, I write comics. Uh, and in my night job, I, uh, I sort of design RPGs now, I guess. Or my very night job, I sleep. Uh, what makes you try to <laughs> fantastic yeah and you, you're not like the the anti-vigilante uh, <laughs> your proper night job <laughs> well if I did I would not reveal it here would I what oh, oh, oh no um, so yes obviously most people will know you from the comic book world um, I first found your work through Wicked Under Divine amazing work which I we won't talk about here but obviously go check it out but my big question to you is like how did you get into role-playing games right at the beginning like were you always a player did you like run games what's your story that's what's your origin story i'm exactly a old but b of a precise age where basically i think i came to consciousness when all this was percolating but i was born in 75 mm-hmm. so i sort of came to consciousness you know that five six seven just as certain things were happening in culture both in rpgs and video games and all mm-hmm. that stuff seemed new the story i always tell is like this is a video game story but like my best mate, Dave, he had a, didn't have a computer, but he had an older brother, therefore had inherited one. Of course. And he told me the, the, the game, The Hobbit, and The Hobbit is this, um, yes. and it, and it, on the way to the swimming bath back, he would tell me, like, oh, they're climbing up the walls, and, you know, and now there's the spiders, and all, and I'm like, sounds obviously the best thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and then I go around Dave's house, uh, eventually one day, and see it, and he never told me it was a text adventure. So I was crushingly <gasps> disappointed. But that, the kind of, the potential of all that kind of stuff tied together it's what's interests me as in the idea of um, even stuff like et it's like a very early movie i saw but you know et opens with a game of dnd mm. you know it's sort of, it's buried it there but like it's definitely there mm. so i craved it in the way that um, the forbidden fruit the possibilities of her worlds place people other than myself mm-hmm. you know all that kind of stuff immediately i was in i like fighting fantasy books and eventually got to a point when i was 10 and my mum and dad bought me burps an opportunity at christmas and they bought me the middle earth role-playing game because i was a huge mm. tolkien head and of course if People who don't know Murps, Murps is a cut down version of Rollmaster. Rollmaster is one of the most 
even of the period, a ludicrously complicated system. So you can imagine me as a te- this 10-year-old kid, sort of, my brother's like two years younger, looking at these tables with amusement and on Christmas morning sort of pushing the figures around, the, the, the rolling on stuff and checking. And over like the next few years, I somehow patched together an understanding of the game. Mm-hmm. And shortly after then, I got into the Games Workshop in that point where, you know, 40K came out in 87, isn't it? Is it 87 or 88? Wasn't yeah, it? something like that, yeah. Uh, and I was there from the start, you know, in that kind of way. Obviously, I couldn't afford the figures or anything. You know, I'm a working-class Stafford kid. But, like, I was aware, yet all that kind of stuff. I came into games just as it started moving into pop culture rather than real underground culture. Because you go into mm-hmm. the 70s stuff, it's proper deep, like almost mm-hmm. culty. And that's kind of what I quite like. It's not culty in the kind of satanic panic way. Culty no. is literally like no one will have heard of it. Yes. Yeah, you know. He's like, what's that? Uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is part of the game. Uh, the game of the comic die is kind of about the satanic panic in that way. And since mm-hmm. we've won the cultural war, we can now sort of admit that, oh, yeah, it looks freaky, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, the, the, the power of the dice is fundamentally what die is about, the idea that these dice transform people. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of metaphorically what RPGs do anyway. They, we take these dice, the dice as a, a totemic thing that transfers us to another world. And they look weird. Can you imagine like parents in the mid eighties when they see these things? Like, yeah. They know D six. They know a six sided dice. They don't know there's any other kind of dice. And suddenly you've got these Lovecraftian blocks of eldritch stuff on the table. Yeah. Yeah. So I came in hard, and I've been bouncing in and out of RPGs most of my life. Mm-hmm. I've always been gaming in one way or the other, but my interests vary depending on what period. So have you mostly been a player then, or have you written stuff like like a homebrew stuff? No, I'm always I was. I wouldn't say a forever GM because no. my big teenage campaign was actually run by someone else. Mm-hmm. But like normally I'm running. Like let I wouldn't say less so now. But even especially okay, my group of friends, I'll be running. And I'll have said, Hey, there's this random indie game, I want to run it. Mm-hmm. So in this suppose it's the same as I like when I was in bands and whatever. If I didn't arrange a session to play for the play, it wouldn't happen. Yeah, yeah. No, I know that feeling. I think a lot of people <laughs> feel that. That urge is jamming, exactly that same. If I don't do it, and I'm a much of a monster to like, if I could do a better job than the person running, I probably should do it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and that's not a healthy way to think. And to also, I've loosened up quite a bit, and mainly because I, I play with people much better than me now. <laughs> but there is a bit like, you know, I should probably do it. It's not that hard. Mm. I play very little actual D&D. I played mm. all the way. One of my fancy role play was my big kind of teenage campaign. I played all the way through the enemy within. Mm-hmm. I, mm. I, like, I ran Cyberpunk. I ran GURPS. I ran um, Paranoia. Like, I loved, I mean, Paranoia is Paranoia. Paranoia is one of those games which is like, oh yeah, this is art. Mm. And it's also, it's not just a derivative art form. Paranoia is explicitly, I mean, I didn't quite get some of it at the time, but when you've got the list of references on the back, mm. and it's funny. Yeah, yes. like it's, it's influenced by all and the Marx Brothers. Mm-hmm. They've got a list of like six people on the thing, and it's definitely, I was young enough not to have read nearly all of them, but I knew that I should have. Mm. Later on, I played stuff like Feng Shui. Great, um, great RPG. Shui. That was one of my go-to games in the late 90s. Mm. And around like 98, I sort of dropped out of RPGs for like a while. Mm-hmm. And I was vaguely aware of the fall. Uh, and then I sort of came back hard around 2013. Monster Hearts, I think, pretty much brought me back. Monster Hearts. Yeah. I, just, I played games in that period. Like, I ran a really long, warmer, fancy third edition campaign. In mm. that, and I, you know, I definitely played games in there, mm. but not in the way I play games now. Like tonight, yes. I'm off to play um, somebody's playtesting a Brindlewood Bay hack, which is um, <gasps> it's Cadfell, so everyone's monks. You're, Amazing. You're monks. I don't know exactly. I'm like all in. A medieval monk solving mysteries. Mm. Like, no idea what it's going to be like. My, my character's a beekeeper and they get bonus XP if they ever give extra judicial punishment to a sinner. 
And I'm, and I presume they mean that in a kind of impish way rather than the Punisher way. Yes, yeah, so that's e- what I would assume. <laughs> either way, either way, I'm in. <laughs> so. I love the structure of Brindlewood Bay and that sort of because it has it's so different to any other of role playing games. And it's interesting again. I, I know uh, Paranoia was an influence for Die, which we'll get onto in a second. But it's really interesting because elements of these things, Monster Hearts, is another example where. There, it's not what you think is like a hack and slash, a roll dice, that's the end of it. It involves a little bit more nuance. Certainly with Paranoia, I know they've got the most recent editions just come out again, but it does on that idea of a very almost like dark humour, Monty Python-esque, like everyone's sort of, it feels very British in a way, where everyone's mm-hmm. sort of muscling their way in and blaming other people and stuff and having fun with it and really delving into those characters, those sides of you that, you know, and everyone has or can reach to an extent, but isn't necessarily one for you and certainly with character death as well that's such a a big part of paranoia and has the impact on it and then up in the clones and stuff like that it's really interesting. and monster hearts is such a i think that that for me i definitely saw the influence of that in die because that's such a the emotions in there where you're playing yourself who has these other powers and stuff but it just it, it's just the connection that you are grounded the ordinary and the extraordinary so both in monster hearts and in die so yeah i can definitely see that is there a particular genre that you love playing you talked about this monk stuff which sounds incredible as a result but is there any particular genre that you always would go towards or are you more about i'll try anything this is my thing about gaming i'm always like or anything like this is like as it when you were sort of coming in the, in the 80s it was always the weird thing when i got into being a games journalist eventually for pc gamer you start to get people who are just fans of one genre and then you've got mm-hmm. people who are just fans of one game like all they did was play counter-strike and for me no no i played Flight simulators. I would never play one now, but it's like, yes, this is the best flight simulator. I'm going to play a flight simulator. Or this is Formula One Grand Prix or very, very hardcore war games or any, any literally I would play anything because for me, the form is the point. I was attracted mm. to the games as a possibility. And that's one reason why like, in the RPG game design is so imaginative and it's so quick as well. Like mm. in the words, the expense, the money is lower in terms of both A, you making it, but B, also B, to do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. So... There's so much ingenuity and inspiration and attack there. That's always the thing that excites me. I, I can't think anything I wouldn't play. Yeah, I mean, that might be a better question, actually, yeah. There's definitely games I'm like, oh, I wouldn't play anything too crunchy now. Or maybe mm. I would. If someone else was willing to run it for me, maybe. Well, that, that, yeah, I get that feeling. No, thanks. Even when designing Die, Die for reasons of structure, it has to be, at its heart, a little bit traddy. As in, a lot of these, it's not player-facing. There's lots of things that are part of the design because it has to use an objective rule system, but quotation marks because mm. it's a game about is the world you go to in die real and if you make the rules mean that no every you meet is just less real than you are you've answered the question already mechanically but at the same time also doing some of this quasi-classic simulationist in a really really cut down way it was also had to be i had to be able to want to play it or bear mm. to play it so it was like die is really stripped to the bone there's you know i realizing i couldn't use the time saving element of player facing I had to basically go, okay, it's one roll for both hit and damage. And yeah. so, and it's about reading, it, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in what mechanics do and how me- yes. mechanics, and it's in Die as well. Die is all about rituals. There's a lot of stuff which is yeah. spicy or sizzled to the stake in that way. Is it, you know, the rituals are passing out the dice of rituals. So everyone close your eyes. And for me, I mean, I didn't use the word rituals. That's part of RRD. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry, Rowan Rook and Deckard. They, they suddenly, or rituals. The game gives you rituals. And that's suddenly, oh no, that's exactly it. It's a game about rituals. It's a game about the magic circle, the magic circle of gaming. We go back to game theory. But, oh no, we'll make a natural magic circle. Yeah, you know, yeah. inside this circle, everything is different. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, making the uh, the the metaphorical literal is yes. kind of one of the fun things fantasy does. 
your listeners to go, that was a really interesting series of sentences there. I'm not sure how they connect, but they were definitely... Well, well here's, here's something to make it connect. So for those people who don't know what Die is, you know, whether the comic or the role-playing game, can you tell us what it is and how does it stand out to other RPGs? How would you summarise it for those people who don't know about it? This would be a really logical thing to do. It would make people less confused. Uh, <laughs> okay, Die. I'll start with the comic. Basically, in 1991, six kids went, sat down and played a homebrew RPG. They weren't seen again for two years. Then they returned and, oh, they were found again, incapable of explaining where they are. Then the year it reaches 2020, or actually 2018 when we start the comic. And the, pe- the people who are now broken, depressed adults uh, get dragged back into the fantasy world where they secretly disappeared to. And now they basically see their lives, regrets and hopes and fears thrown back at them. It's basically a meta-fantasy story. It's about um, midlife crisis. It's also about like games. Why do we play games? So it's a lot about what these people allowed themselves to be in the game. And the other the core part of the comic, one of the spoilers, is that the way to go home is you say the game is over. You get in a circle and say the game is over. But everyone has to want to do it. So the, the comics mainly gets to a point where some people decide they want to stay and some people don't. And the way it settles is either persuasion or murder. And that's kind of what the, that's the drama engine. Mm-hmm. What Die the RPG does is basically take that setter as a group of real world messed up people, go to a fantasy world. The fantasy world externalizes their internal hopes, fears and traumas. Mm-hmm. They travel through this and they reach to a point where the person who brought them, the game's master or the master as the character class is called, mm-hmm. they have to come to an agreement where they have to stay or leave. Either by emotional crying and therapy and holding hands or sword point <laughs> so it's not really it's not a player versus player game until literally that final scene when it mm. can be um mm. and that's what it's about and and the game gives you that if you need to basically do that basic structure mm. how to basically generate messed up people we do it it's, it's question led and it's you generate the social group and basically all this kind of questions gives the gm stuff to basically throw back at the players mm. so in other words like if you say oh yeah i never got over my teenage crush or whatever and you go into the world and suddenly like the elf princess or queen or king or whoever looks like your crush or whatever yes. and, and you run from there. That's the really basic version. Mm-hmm. But then you also get stuff like your dumb obsessions start coming back. So like, oh yeah, I was really into uh, Funko Pops. And suddenly you're in this weird dungeon where all the goblins are like Funko Pops chasing around. <laughs> like, so it's all about both the high and the low and mining your obsessions. And of course, our obsessions reflected back to us is what games do. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to bastardize an Alex Roberts quote. But one of the things they, you know, Roberts was always interested in is like creativity is infinite. That's kind of what games do. So part of Die was me basically saying, hey, I get some pretty full-on reviews. People who like my work really do like my work. Mm-hmm. And a part of Die is basically saying, no, this is easy. This is what I did. I'm going to tell you how to do it. And you know, you'll be able to do your own version at home. So now there's a few, especially in the, the, the core rituals game of Die, you know, the questions allow you to limit it. So the questions are good questions that give you characters with powerful and messed up desires. Mm-hmm. And then the, having the an end thing to, to a set climax, and it doesn't always happen. It does happen in the same place. But the idea, the game ends when they get together and make a decision. Because mm. basically, anything can happen in the middle. As long as you have that final scene, it feels like a story. Yes. And like, and the fact that the GM also of the character. Yes. The GM character at least doesn't want to go home at the start. So you'll always have at least some manner of climax. Mm. And if the players get more messy... <laughs> You know, then there's an even different climax. Mm-hmm. And the climax and the decision to whether the game continues or not speaks to both the char- the people who are running the game and the persona they've generated. And of course, 
since the game's quite bleedy, you know, and it always it's very oh, easy yes. to bring bits of yourself in. Mm. It often becomes about so why do you play games anyway? Yeah. You know, and that's that's the fun of it. Oh, and then there's also a load of extra for like all the character classes are deconstructions of, of um the classic RPG classic. Yes. Very, very tropey in places, which I love. It's, it's like all the tropes. Everyone gets soul ownership of one dice. So the D10 class is the Neo. The Neo is basically a cyberpunk character dropped into a fantasy world. They're kind of rogues. And of course, there's the classic RPG trope of, oh yeah, don't trust the thief character, you know, that stuff. And it's ludicrous. In a classic D&D adventure, all the characters are clearly thieves. They literally just walk, walk around the <laughs> why, why are people scared of like, thieves? With Neo, the trope of them is they um, there's a special sort of magical gold and they need magical gold to power up their weapons and overcharge it. So basically, to do anything, they need this one resource, which disappears every day, so you can't hoard it. Yes. So they are constantly, I mean, quite regularly people play them as addicts, but isn't the only way of playing it. It's a really good method for gig economy. Mm-hmm. And immediately, they've got a tension. And this will come back to paranoia. They've got something which they need, which the rest of the group maybe don't need as want. I mean, how much do you, like, support them? How much do you kick against Yeah. So the tension and collaboration is really kind of built into the game in that way. I just want to go back because I just... There is so much. I think what you said it bleeds through. It's so true. I like everything you say about die that idea that we had these full personas. Like, why do we come back to games? It's so true. And when I read through the comments and then read through the RPG, I love how firstly that obviously the GM is a character as well. You have, like you said, the ritual idea. So almost like a a lot element at the beginning where you agree on who you're going to be. You fill out the questionnaires, uh, you know, beautiful questionnaires, which just give a little prompt, and then you turn off your screen or you go out the room and then you come back in and act as if you're re- reuniting for the first time. And having that laugh element, and that's just pure role play, that's pure conversation. And then you go on to that extra level, so going from those personas, those sort of deeply full personas, and then on top doing these uh, the the paragons, these different classes. It's it's such a richly rewarding experience as me as a, as an improviser who definitely a lot of my characters have an element of myself in it. And if I was running this game, I I could definitely see the GM who wants to keep running and people's oh scheduling conflicts. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, being the big bad and allowing myself to indulge in that bit, I was just like, ah uh, yes, and that having that whole the idea of ritual, so making sure people are safe and knowing what they're doing because I know a lot of this stuff, as you sort of hinted at, it can get quite dark. There's quite mature themes in it, but. The second part I just wanted to drop on, getting those inspirations from what is happening in your own lives and then externalise it, because that happens so often. You put, like you said, the evil principal or, or the person that got away as someone in that front, and only the GM sort of knows. But I like this sort of collaborative thing where you're pulling on stuff from the players and then you're uh, externalising There's a, a, a oh, Magpie Games, a, a Bluebeard's Bride. Amazing game. It's such a good game. And again, mm-hmm. that's sort of the questions that you pull on those fears and then they create the rooms. I do think that takes a lot of switch on from the GM, but I love it in this game as well. That you Obviously, you've got lots of templates for stuff. There's certainly in the bit at the end where you talk, talk about monsters, you go, here are the themes where these things could be applied to. And that's so helpful. I was like, oh, thank God, I don't have to worry about improving too many um, too many monsters that look like your your mother-in-law or, or your father-in-law, all that sort of things. There's just so many touchstones on it that for me as somebody who's played lots of different RPGs and had lots of different game groups, I can see elements of it coming together. It's just, I know this is like a big compliments fest, but kudos, I actually feel it. And I really, that's, I'm excited that such a game exists to have that meta, meta, meta commentary about how we play games and how we use these games to come over our fears and stuff. And I just think it's done in such a beautiful way from obviously the original world setting, but actually it comes through really well in the uh, mechanics as well with the dice and assigning it to different people. I just, obviously having the D20 as the master, I was like, yeah, absolutely, I'll take. That's mine. Yeah, exactly. I see you having it there on your camera. Oh, yeah, yes, I've got an enormous D20 as a fidget tool. Thank you. That's very kind. I mean, like, 
So my brain's got about 40 answers yeah, to various bits. Same. I'm just I've been very I've been looking forward to this for so long. I just wanna I love your game. For you then, is there a particular paragon or a class that you've developed that you're that you're like you're very proud of or stands out to you? Because you've talked about one being the Neo, obviously, the sort of the rogue one, but you've got five other ones in there as well. When I was developing the game, and the biggest, there was definitely a long period when I was doing the comic where I wasn't sure which was the tail and which was the dog because I worked in the comic a bit and then I worked in the game a bit. Yeah, and I was like, which one? And then eventually became an Ouroboros is the way I know it. It's like it, there were different ways of looking at die. So the truth of die is like a hologram between the, these two things and the different ways of thinking. And this whole real core bits of die, which came from the game and then got put into the comic and the other way around when I was solving different problems. So I, I really, I was running die as a game well, like before the comic came out, which is, you know, really, I had the core concept for each of the six classes. And then it was like, okay, we'll make, here's some rules. That kind of makes it work and start playing it. And different ones had to work at different time. And there were so many times, oh yeah, the emotion rights now crap. <laughs> you know, like, because like, I've done more work. Like, this is a better class and this is a better class. And like, the master was the last one to become a full class. Mm. And then the rest was so developed by that point. It was like, oh good, well, like, I've got to really work hard on the master. And I went through several drafts to get to them. Sure. They've all got different amounts of love at different time. And where they've ended up, I think it's pretty solid. Like, mm. I'm, I don't really have a favourite. That's fair. <laughs> I think they, they, all, they do their job well, which is mm. what I think I'm most proud about. Yes. Like, um, certain design goals and sometimes i kind of weakened on them not in a bad way so no i'm being too purist here like one of the things i want to do is that every character owns a dice so yes. it's a dice pool system so the d6 is belongs to the character called the fool who is the common touch sort of character they've got this moment where they kind of realize oh no they're all the same as all the other ones and at the moment i was oh i've got to make the d6 special somehow and what mm. the fool can do is they're allowed to write on their d6 yes which is such a the fool is a transgressive character in that way it's equivalent to the um the old noughties World of Warcraft meme, Leroy Jenkins. The old yes. kind of like, oh, it's less of a character type archetype, it's more of a player type archetype. See, I feel that. That's the thing. I feel that with all of them. It feels like I have been in games where there's someone who goes, fuck it, and rushes in, and you're like, no. <laughs> Don't do that. Yeah, like, like you, you described it as like, yeah, rushing to danger and relying on luck just to get through. And they're lucky bastards, aren't they? They just happen to do it. And you're like, that shouldn't have worked. And so I definitely felt that, uh, certainly in the mechanics for the fool as well. It was really interesting. Drawing the dice feels transgressive and immediately mm. speaks to that, which you get to do this and it's unusual. At the same time, the fool, like, they're, you know, they're, they're meant to be a slight irritant, but also like and a tragedy because they've got to be cheerful, or at least optimistic, to be, for the powers of the work. So yes. they work really well for inexperienced players, but they work very well for people who want to do the, the sad clown. You know, the yes. Ayampak Alachi kind of, there's a word I'm not sure I'm pronouncing. Uh, like... But the other abilities were, oh no, this is too annoying. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yes, there's an implicit joke to the class, but this is creates tension at the table in a mm. in a bad way. So you know what I mean? There's always that push and pull, mm, which is exciting. The sort of the design thing I wanted to do was every dice are used in a different way. Yes. For example, the emotion dice, who is the D8, who's played a, a paladin but with emotions instead. Yes. They use the D8 basically as a counter. They only ever rolled it when they're using their, their top level mega ability. Mm -hmm. the whole thing about trying to use the d20 as a counter on a board or whatever and i sort of realized that the d12 which is the god boy who speaks to the gods they only really ever use theirs when like if they want to speak to the god they actually use it as a physical object mm -hmm. some of those stuff is still in the game mm -hmm. but reality is like no uh, people just like adding it their dice to the dice pool yes what, why, yeah. why would i did why would i deny them this <laughs> so um you know what i mean so there's bits like that mm -hmm. but also part of the game was like the core rules are quite simple like you know it's meant to be a really simple core mechanic because all the six character classes are quite bespoke. Because mm. I was trying to mystify the character classes to the other players. So everyone else feels a bit magical. Yeah. 
Yeah. You're like, my abilities don't work like that. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously that's in all games to some degree. But I think your sub-level, you sort of, especially in some games, you realize, I kind of see what they're doing. Like, I understand. Mm-hmm. Unless they're doing sort of like alchemy or wrestling. <laughs> but I mean, you mentioned earlier, actually, think about, there's so much here. And it, the first arc of Die, the comic, is called Fantasy Heartbreaker. You know, which is the old technical term for sort of doing D and D clone and from the heart, and it really has a few ideas, but they're really kind of like outsider arts. They have no idea what the, how the form has moved on. Uh, in some way, Dai was me embracing that. You know, Dai is absolutely my love song to RPGs, and this is kind of like, I mean, you mentioned like the bit where you actually embody your character. That's absolutely me throwing a five minute Nordic LARP. In. You yes, know, it's just yeah. like in the middle of the game, and that's fine. I eventually sort of realised the the whole structure of Dai is like you're, you're at the persona level, which is what we call the real your will people. At the character level, which is the inside die, the, the, when you're transformed into a fancy adventurer. This is like a dialogue between like the narrative and the mechanics tradition. Like very specifically, I wanted everything in the, in the world to be embodied in the same way. Everyone has basically the same rules. Any, the only differences to the players are in-world differences. And the difference being they have the dice. And the dice are basically like the rings of Lord of the Rings. Yes. At the same time, this mechanical world of traffic. The other side is pure story game. Uh, and we sort of define this as in the fantasy world, the GM has final say, and in the real world, the players have final say. Like you could define anything you want about your backstory. Mm-hmm. And whilst we talk about the beginning of the game, we do persona gen and talking about, oh yeah, I my dad died when I was at school, like, you know, all that all that kind of stuff. But that carries on forever. Like the GM could constantly ask questions. Yes. You get bonuses to dice if you do a flashback or to session, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. One of the things in the playtest that occasionally the more you played the game, the more you became disconnected from the real world. And that's so much of the game structure as we developed it was to make sure it's always about the real world. Yes. And it's so like in terms of prep, it's it's weirdly low prep. For example, like, let's say you do a story like, okay, you go for the woods. Tell me about your grandmother's house. Ask a player, mm. and they did describe it. Say, great, it's there in the woods. Mm. And you go to the door, and it's like, I open the door. Okay, tell me about your grandmother's front room. Mm. And you describe that. It's slightly the same as that, but your grandmother's now a lich and is crawling up the ceiling or whatever. You know, so you can use them to generate the map. And then, of course, you know, they define stuff in the real world. But yeah. then when the GM gets to tweak it in the fantasy world, however they want. I said, yeah. that's weird. Like, there would normally be a front room there, but it's not, you know, that kind of conversation. It's very collaborative storytelling, like, at its finest. I think there's now been this big shift, certainly with sort of streaming and whatnot, where you, the GM is not. The, like you said it is the last person and they got the rules and stuff like that it's, and it's their story and I think I certainly for me with doing improv stuff like I, I definitely do that now so ask players before we begin what's the cool fact about your character or you're on your way to X what do you see you know and allowing to do it and, and some players really relish in that some of them are, aren't sure what to do because they're like no you're telling the story and I think what that's what's great about Die is having that persona generation and ongoing as you said like you have you have lots of advice about how to keep that going past session two and onwards it gives them that agency and almost almost respect. So that people who maybe haven't run or, or GM'd games, that, that they can see, as you were sort of saying earlier, when you were running all the different ones, it's not that scary. You can just go and have fun and you don't have to remember all these rules and all this prep to do it when you have a trusting player base that you can talk to about it. And I think that's so important for all RPGs to do that now rather than the traditional sort of one person, the the DM with the temple fingers going, good, good, now roll your D20, <laughs> you know. People like that, and I don't want to say anything about that, but we've moved on, and we it's so nice to have this variety of storytelling and have ownership over the game itself. So, yeah, I no, I really saw that in Die. It has got a more structured relationship than some story, like, it's not even a pure story game. It's a more structured, as in the GM has power in certain areas, the players have more power. And of course, the, that the GM has a character means that the GM is also defining stuff about their history in the real world. Yes. So they have power both as GM and as player. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So all that stuff's really 
magical and interesting. Like, what is the relationship here? I mean, you mentioned, um, I mean, also you being an improver, Imp- improver, improviser. Yes, improver. I'll say that. <laughs> improver. <laughs> As an improver, like when you pull from a monologue, that's literally the skill what a GM is doing in die. You know, like the players are giving a monologue and you're pulling, right, okay, you did this, you did this, you did this, and then you're going to be thrown back. So it was so important for me because I wanted it to fail gracefully. Yeah. In the year before I started properly developing die, we started an RPG group. It was me, you know, Quinta Smith of Should Have Sit Down. Uh, like, it was, a, it was a group of my friends that we wanted to explore modern RPGs. As there was a mixture of like me, like, people like me and Quinta who really just wanted to catch up and other people who had never played games before. So, like, let's go. We'll hit a load of stuff. And we played, like, one shots to four shots maximum. And it was hard. We learned a lot. There's so much good stuff there. But some sessions just failed. And some sessions went well. The players enjoyed it. And I was distraught. Like, as in, no, that wasn't the aesthetic goal we were looking for. You know what I mean? So, like, it was so important for me to die to be more carried to the GM than that. In that the fact that this that ending is such a powerful part of die in terms of, like, you're still playing to find out what happens and all that kind of basic sort of stuff. But at the same time, you could do whatever you want. You don't need to worry about anything else. Stuff happens for three hours, then this happens. Yes. And then you'll get a capstone. It'll feel like a story anyway. That's what I mean by failing gracefully. Because mm. one of the things players may reject making characters who are too depressed. And that's okay too. Because the GM's depressed and angry. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, you know, take that on. Yeah. You know, and like, you know, the GM, the, the character. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. Yes, yeah, sorry. That is that bleeding through thing you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's always, I tell you, this is one of the very key bits of the rules where it says, a lot of people say address the persona, not the player. No, no, it was explicitly, hey, rat player, tell me what your character is feeling. Because yes. if you don't do that, you suddenly get people offended. You asked about like their dead parents mm. or whatever. And that happens, well, actually, it happened once in playtesting. And I mean, it was like, okay, and if you, it needs to be part you of You need to be clear on that, yes. yes exactly. It's interesting because I, I, just this conversation has reminded me of a time. So I ran a game called In Name Only. And it's a, basically the whole game system is that you use your in real life name, and that's the talents you have. So for Fiona, for example, is. You have fire magic, ice magic, oversized weapons, nature magic, and archery. And I ran it, and the mechanic is that the characters have these these talents. No one else in the world does until the players named them. So the then on they're like the mayor's son, the baker, etc. And at the end of the game, it was very interesting because everyone was really really enjoying it, and they they found the person that was going to be sacrificed to whatever demon, etc. And and I said, oh, they're not waking up. They're you know they're cold. And one of the players went, I know what to do. And went up and went, Fiona, wake up. And I burst into tears because oh. it, it was just suddenly yeah. I was then in the room. I'd never had that experience before because I'd, I'd kept it separate. And I burst into tears and everyone else I was like jubilant in that sort of way. And it was a, such a good thing about suddenly being included. And I think this stuff game like this where with that persona of the GM, you are seen as a player, as a antagonist you know or as a working together with them it's so different to any other game and it's something i really would love to explore more as you feel like again going back to the improvider it is a scene partner thing you are working together rather than just being one person directing it all and I just yeah it just it just reminded me of that what you were saying then about that sort of being that gm and just giving them that space as well as collaborating with players that's definitely some of the most interesting stuff about die as in like the GM has a more distant relationship with their character than the players do. Yes. It's not like the GM's character is every scene. But at the same time, especially if playing a campaign, like the campaign I did, it was pretty traumatic by the end. As in, it got to the point where the, the entire plot was this kind of Alice. She was this kind of like slightly goffy. The, the group were like literary students who uh, had a played at university and had a really bad time with each other. And then they kind of got get together years later. So one of them successful, most of them aren't. Mm. And Alice basically is basically a revenge monster early on. 
and then eventually realize she's been split into four parts so you've got the four different sections of alice's emotions inside there wow. and eventually they get to the point where various bits of alice get pushed back together again and they get to the final scene where alice is basically they've talked alice around like the real baddie is defeated who is basically her, her dad ah. oh, there's lots of messy stuff like, oh this is one of those cool rules about dying yeah if you die you come back as a fallen so basically this zombie creature and you don't get a vote anymore however if you kill another player you go back to life mm. that's a mechanic motif no pun intended <laughs> and the, the situation was like oh yeah they've, they've captured the the bad guy as in like, and i gave them that very easily and one one of their players is undead at this point. This player, it's the bad guy. You know, the dad who deserves everything. You know, goes back to life. They do the ritual. They go home and leave the guy there. That's justice. This player just miscarried. I'm not going to kill him because he's it's literally defenseless. It's not. It's not in a fight. This is murder. Like, and so like it goes around for everyone's very emotional. And then and I realise that there's a way. There's a sort of way out here. And I'm sort of sitting back as my uh, Alice. I can cheat now. The master, their kind of highest level ability is to just break the rules hard. Yeah. And it's got very, very simple... Okay, there's more mechanics as well, if you listen sure. to this. But yeah. at the top level, you put a D20 in your hand, and you offer it to the rest of the group. If they find the D20, it means the forces of reality has spotted you cheating, and you suffer punishment. The punishment varies depending on how bad things are, how bad the cheat. If they don't pick the dice, uh, well, then you've got away with it. So it's really a 50-50 chance. Yeah. And Alice basically goes, um, okay, I'll cheat, and we we, we can get you, know, we'll get you out. We'll, we'll all get out. And everyone's like, don't do it, Alice. It's literally flipping a coin. And the person, the other person still won't kill them because it's... And, yeah. and, and Alice like, no, don't want you. No, yeah, you don't want to get... I, I brought you here. This is on me. It's my fault. The problem of being a better person is you have to be a better person every day of your life. Which is a great line oh, to come off the top of my head. Amazing. It's most annoying. Why <laughs> <laughs> well, you do that all the time? <laughs> yeah. So annoying. Uh, uh, no, no, the character was like, you know, I've got to do the right thing. How annoying. And of course, I hand out, hold out the two dice like this to them. Like this. Not in this one, because it's much easier. It's, it's yeah, it was a smaller one. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and everyone's obviously completely silent. So it's literally a flip of the coin, basically, whether they're going to do it. But it's a flip of the coin based around their choice. They pick it. I open the hand and it's one with the dice. I describe it. Back in the real world, we go around the table. Yeah. Alice is there. I, I stare in her nothing. She's had a heart attack and died. So in other words, Alice has been... They've all got home. Alice is left and die. Just fates unknown. Everyone's fucking heartbroken. Yeah. Uh, and shy. And I, and I say, we'll all break for five minutes. We'll come back for the epilogue. You know, obviously, Alice is my character. And I was, I was part of the conclusion. I wasn't playing as GM. I, I moved back to playing as character at that point. Mm. You know, and it worked. It was incredibly powerful. Yeah, it would. I gave Alice a semi-happy ending when she was trapped. She was end up being queen of hell and die for reasons. There's reasons why she was queen. There's of reason, hell. yeah. I, 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 I see it was a happy choice for her to do that. So. Assassinated the Death God and uh, I put Optimo, who was literally a crayon wizard, in charge of hell. Amazing. She wasn't fine, but uh, it was as good as it could give her. Yeah, I love that with the fallen stuff. The idea that not everyone makes it back and that that they have died in the real world or they're still in that other world. And you gave so many really good examples of that. The person that chooses to stay or whatever in the world, they are missed at home. And having those epilogue scenes, like, and I think what's great about it is that you've got the structure of like the rituals, opening the circle, playing it, closing the circle, taking the dice back, and the epilogues. It's such an easy structure for uh, anyone to run, and but it it allows for those breaks and those pauses so that you can really feel the impact of that emotion, a very weighty emotional stuff like that. As because I, I can imagine like everyone going, "Fuck, what do we do?" And you're like, "And now we take a break so that we can process what has happened and then come back to it." It's yes, more games should have structure like that just to help 
you know, when we're creating beautiful stories like this, which have uh, emotional sort of tensions, which I think makes beautiful storytelling, it just to give us that sort of structure so we know that this is our game now, this is the bit we're doing this bit in, and just to help us, otherwise we could spiral out and just be like, what do we do for the rest of our lives? Obviously, that was like a big 35-part campaign. But like, mm. I mean, Die, the core version of Die is like three or four sessions, I normally say. But if you want my standard GM advice to anyone, one of them is just epilogues. If you're running a one-shot, go just throw in an epilogue. It gives everyone much better closure. Mm. And it's a, as you say, it's a chance to decompress. It's a chance, okay, it, what happened then? Now I get myself to have some form of closure. And we step away, and you know that's why I always like stars and wishes. I think the, anything that adds camaraderie after the game is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But also, it's the best way to give very soft feedback to a GM who isn't getting it. <laughs> yes, Jason uh, Cordova, when he ran the 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 between, he introduced me to that idea. Like we go around about what we enjoyed, you know, whether something that we did or somebody else did as a start, and then a wish for a future session. Like I'd love to do more scenes with so and so, or I would love more explanation of this. And it's just such a nice positive yeah. and constructive thing to do and yeah i i'm a big fan of that now after after seeing it work so I, i've tried i'm going to implement that into more of my games because i think it's just people might feel like oh is it more admin but i think i it's admin important admin say so, you know boundaries and stuff at the beginning stars and wishes at the end I, I it's something we should all be helping towards just so that you know we can we can have that chance to decompress remove ourselves from the bleed a little bit and and just go on with our days so yeah oh, it's like is it the best way of Star Stars and Wishes is about being seen. As in, you did this thing, I loved that bit. Yes. I, actually, I wrote an article, I loved it in my newsletter, my basic my tips for bad players. And like, because someone said, you can't really have tips for players across all games. And I was like, actually, I disagree. I'm going to disagree with that. I'm going to try. But most of the actual good ones are stuff like being supportive of the people at the table. And, it, and it's mm -hmm. not like being, it's like the emotional support of like being, you know, one of the classic bits of player, Powered by the Apocalypse. Be a fan of the players as a GM yes. advice. But it's like, no, be a fan of the players if you even as players, you being a better player is because if the entire table is feeling each other's successes, it's just a better table. And that's what and stars and wishes like make sure some of that happens. Be that scene partner who's supporting the other scene partner and everyone raises up as a result. What would you say? Because obviously you're saying you you're creating both the comic and the RPG at the same time, which is it sounds like a lot. Uh, I appreciate it. it was five years in development and stuff, but was there a particular part that you really enjoyed writing about die or you were just like when you did it it was just like just really everything came together was it a particular class or, or just an idea that you had at all wow yeah so, yeah, yeah i'll just get granted here and he'll say yeah kieran clearly must have liked writing because he wrote so much of it because like so <laughs> much was about editing yes. um and like a lot of it's just essays I enjoyed hammering out in a in a voice and just the release version die is so much better than any of the beaters because it, it just drills down and gets what it's for Yes. And like, there's so much like not fluffy guiders, hard guiders do this because yes. it's like the beast has ballooned in some ways because I want to try to protect everybody. But in reality, the more you write in an RPG manual, the less anyone remembers. So like, when you've got the actual, the, I think seven, I guess seven principles of die jamming or whatever it is, mm. and they're good principles. Really good. And what I mean is they're good principles for die. As in, if you just read those pages, that's how you do die. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the moves in a Powered by the Apocalypse game, yes. mm -hmm. uh, or the GM moves rather. So that stuff I enjoyed writing, where they really get to sort of hit it. But like the stuff I'm like, you mentioned the the best tree, which was came in late. That's yes. sort of thing. And also there's a load of other people who wrote the best tree. But I was realizing, oh, we can do a beginner's guide to deconstruction. That's not interesting for me. Oh, like, no. in, <laughs> but yeah, in die especially, uh, boring. Yeah, I like numbers in lots of different ways. But in terms of like, because I didn't like because you don't can't give too interesting monsters to die. Because the point being, the monsters have to be the boring monsters. Yes, they have to yes. be your standard. They, you know, this isn't about me being interested. This is about creating an ingredient for you to be interested. So you need to write up that stuff, but at the same time, don't want to. <laughs> 
But grandfather the idea is like, okay, here's the stats I don't know, uh, giants. Here's some stats you can use for giants. Then we say what sort of things you could use to drive for. And then we can do these things called truths. Mm-hmm. And truths are basically 300 words divided into like, you know, 40 word paragraphs of like, here are some things which are commonly acceptedly true. And it's deliberately written quite poetically. And it's full of allusions and references. And the point being, as the, the guide at the start of this section says, this is how you deconstruct something. You either make something more true or you invert to the truth. So it's like, you know, Medusas as mean girls. Yeah. That's my go-to example because I just like that image. That's taking Medusa's truth and yes. then twisting it. But like writing them were beautiful. Like generally when I was writing the, because I took several attempts to get to the ones I was happy with. But stuff like the giants, like you, you, you search them and you think about them. I mean, my favourite bit is the paragraph where I know that giants, um, giants are unlike other creatures. They're the only fantasy creature we've actually met. Mm. We're surrounded by beings of enormous stature. They dwarf us. Uh, and slowly, day by day, they disappear. Mm. Giants remind us that we once uh, felt protected or scared. Uh, and you know, that kind of, you know, obviously that's I'm I'm, only, I'm a parent now or whatever. But that's, that's that stuff's on my mind. But yeah, that's true. You know, the, the weirdness that oh no, we lived around giants, and that's what I most love about that section. As it's not just me writing; it's other people. Yeah, here's something to think about. There's little short paragraphs to get you thinking, and that's yes. you know, like props. That's the kind of that's the stuff I like. As in, because mm. so much of my favorite RPG writing is and go. It's not yeah. like, and I, and I love, I love, I, I mean, I love the long rambling paranoia form as well. But yes. the fundamental idea is, here's an idea I'm going to put in your head and it's going to explode and, and blossom. For me, when I'm putting together like RPGs, it's usually just a prompt and I go, and I, it runs away with it. And that's what I really love, certainly, yeah, about the beastry is that that's the thing. You, you, it's, it feels little touchstones rather than long paragraphs. Yeah, I, and I totally see that paranoia as well. It's like, you definitely have to go... Okay, and then go into it, even though like you you can get the feel quite interesting. Yeah, anyway, one thing I just cause on that because one of my favourite things about it is obviously we talked about it. This idea that it is a group coming back to something, and usually uh, we think of it as uh, you know teenagers who used to play, and then now they're coming back as older. I love how you've given other examples of it in Die as well, like the the people at a convention. Uh, I love that, and like playing a video game as well. Because I think sometimes it's so nice to switch that dynamic as well. So you weren't maybe friends, but you're co-workers. You're something else, and just changing similar dynamics but putting it in elsewhere and i'm a big fan of that as well so if you if for whatever reason the reuniting of friends isn't for you there is other examples of it in the die core book as well just just to taste it i like i love the convention one i definitely i i know it's meant to be played at a convention as well so i'm like yeah that's going to happen at some point for me i want to i want to run that because i think it's just it's such an interesting setup from that yeah, point yeah. Of view. i'm going to on the ship and i think i'm going to do a different version of that similar kind of setup like that the, the one that's written is actually about a comic book team so it's very yes. very very meta yeah. but i want to do a more games culture orientated version of that mm. so like similar because actually the first large play test i ran of die was at uh, nine worlds and it was yeah. a ver- an early version of this scenario and it's basically it was a pickup game at the con so there was relationships there but it was mainly the gm was just a parasite trying to mess with people like basically steal people's lives and get what they wanted so it's that I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to use it as Gen Con. I'm going to make it much more... I'll call it Open Gaming License to Kill. Uh, and we're going to say something <laughs> open there. Yes! Oh, topical reference. I love it. <laughs> yes. um, this is a good example. So much about like die is meant to be improvised, but we provide the structure. So the, the con one, of course, is you, use, you take the con map you're at and you use the con map as your central dungeon map. Yeah. And they, you appear in whatever room you're playing and go, okay, and you've chosen sort of where they've got to get to and you use, okay, what would the trader hall be? You know, and you can sort of build, you know, it's like all you need is a prompt. And this is what this we turn to that kind of like, I'm about to try to do a hex crawl. Like, you know what I mean? The service wrap die for me is like, you have a few questions, questions to generate the group, mm. way to generate the world, 
often including those questions, mm. endgame. And that's how you got a dice scenario. Like, and obviously, as you say, you've got quite a few in the book and we've got different social groups. But like, I'm pretty sure the first project we'll do, like an add-on book for die, will be here's some more scenarios. Because most scenarios in any game, you're picking them for parts. Like you, yes. you can run them straight, but you always think, oh, I'll nab that bit. Yeah. With die especially, I think, the fact you have the each one of the social group questions can be lifted off. And yeah. you could do something else, you know what I mean? And it just goes back to what you were saying before about using the dice as physical stuff as well as sort of rolling them. I'm a big fan of props. So instantly I'm like, yeah, get the map out. I just, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of that because, again, that speaks to the improviser in me as well. My flip question to like, what was your favourite thing? Which is probably an unfair question, I'll admit, is like, was there anything particularly challenging? I assume you just kept writing and then having the editing process, but was there anything particularly challenging about die that you were like it, it doesn't take you long to think about but just stuff like you were like mm, and then when you got over that obstacle you're like you were satisfied with it you see what i mean i said definitely discovering there's this key on this keyboard called delete grant told oh, yeah. me it like apparently <laughs> that you can press it and then oh. your manuscript gets shorter i was very confused by this uh <laughs> what was hard i guess you all took it in your stride really because obviously i know it's five years of a lot of hard work but i uh, just yeah if, was a, if, if there was anything sometimes Sorry, the final crunch was hard like obviously i had to basically rewrite the whole manuscript do a polish on the whole manuscript sure. in a week when i was away abstractly meant to be on holiday wasn't on holiday no. <laughs> uh like when i was with my friends and they spent the entire time sitting in front of me in a hot tub whilst i was wrestling with this bit creature oh, no. the full manuscript was about 300k and the thing is mostly it was extraneous you know, I was writing 300,000 words to discover the right 5,000 words. Some of the fluffier stuff was tricky. Knowing when to stop, that was probably because I definitely got to a point where I realized, oh, no, this entire thing I'm developing now isn't, this isn't an RPG. This is an extra RPG. Yeah. Like, because it's, by definition, you're making worlds, it's never over. Mm. Yeah, there was a lot that was difficult, but nothing specifically. It was all yeah. nightmarishly hard. I mean, actually, you know, I used to, <laughs> fun, but, I mean, I used to be a games journalist, uh, yeah. as I said before. But one of the things that when my friends who've gone from games journalism to games, they occasionally say something like, oh, I never realized it'd be this hard. And I'm like, you've interviewed game developers. Been, you've seen their broken eyes and tired faces. Like, <laughs> did you think they were lying? Yeah. <laughs> like, so like, I always knew it was going to be nightmarishly hard. You know, like, I'm, like that's yeah. what it, it's clearly nightmarishly hard. You already prepped for it. So. Yeah. I just believe people. I'm a simple man. I think you have talked about it a little bit, but it'd be interesting for, the, for anyone who's like obviously listened to this or has picked up Dangos. I want to, I want to run it. Was there a big tip that you would give people for running a game of die for the first time? There you've got this. The important thing about reading die is like it's, we've done it. It's a proper RPG manual, and this is actually this. I was going to say this is the hardest thing. But it's reality is we reworked the structure of the book like maybe three times, and it was a bit hard to say. Oh, I'd rewritten the whole to be like something else, then they realised it actually has to be the other way again, mm. and like that was like. A lot of work, you know, that kind of, but that the point of discovery. Mm-hmm. The problem with die in the present manual state is we've arranged it like a manual. Like, so you've got, you go in, intro, basic rules, the character classes, then you go into sort of more scenario and GME stuff. In another version of die, you kind of like just start with chapter seven, which is uh, rituals. Mm. That is by far the most important chapter in the book. As in, like, right. people quite often when reading the book, manual, they might get lost in the character class stuff. Don't. My recommendation for your prep should be maybe read the, read the introduction. Yeah. Get the character sheets, flick through them. No need to read them. It's just so they've got you've got the basic rules on the character sheets too. That's all you need to know. So get a high level view of roughly what the characters are like. Then just read rituals. Like if they haven't read, because it's like you don't understand what the game is until you've read that chapter. Agreed. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you know, like if I was going to give more specific tips. 
I saw that it really is those kind of the GM guideline chapters. As you know, I've got those yeah, seven really rules. Is, um, Persona generation never ends. Ground the fantastical, weird than normal. Players have final say everything established about their personas. GM has final say everything established in the fantasy world. In the player roles, something happens. Take note. Like Persona generation never ends is the first one for, the, for that reason I mentioned. As in, because that, whilst weird the fantastical and ground the normal, they kind of come from Persona gen. But so, the fact that the idea of always be asking questions, sort of words like, if you if you ever stuck for inspiration as a GM, just ask a player. As an orc here, I've got no idea what's weird about the orc. Say, um, you know, ask a question: Who do you most hate in the world? To, to a player, lob it straight at the orc. It's you know, it's never too late to mine someone for something to make the world interesting. I mentioned Cordova for the fifth time in the session at this I know, time. I, I think. Mean, me too, me too. <laughs> but his technique: paint the room. It's the which is the idea that you know he. You ask a player a question, like for example, well, how did you realize that this room would be? There's a trap in this room. You know, and it's not just establishing a fact in the world. It's also establishing something about the character. How, how does your character spot, which is really great storytelling. That's not quite how die works. Die works by asking people questions and they don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And that's me trying to re-enchant the magic of like the classic RPG. As in, so there's some ways there is the all powerful gem and the steepled fingers we talked yeah. about. Like there is some of that in die, but it's not for the same purpose. No, completely different. Yeah. You're explicitly, I'm listening to you. So in other words, by asking this question, you know this is going to have an effect on the world. Yes, you exactly. don't know for sure. And that's, for me, that the magic of creation is like, whilst the full-on collaborative method is incredibly powerful and works in most of the you know, what I love in almost all the games, with Die, the insurity is, is the key. Because in the, real, in the same way in the real world, we don't really know what's happening. Like, it's slightly out of control. And that's one reason why dice and random devices are, more, are quite compelling as a system. Because the fact it suddenly becomes out of control makes it real. And that's kind of what I was trying to evoke with Die and that, the way Persona Gen. So, so much about Die is that. Ask questions about real world, integrate. And I, I loved your previous one about talking about epilogues as well. I think everyone needs epilogues for that closure. Oh, yeah. I think that's such a good, good, that's such an interesting one. That's something I will definitely put forward in my future campaigns. But Kieran, we've talked for, for ages. And I, I, honestly, I'm, I've gone red because I'm so excited. And I honestly, thank you so much for taking the time. My final question to you is, where can we find out more about your work? Where can we find Die when it's out? And do you have anything else that's upcoming? I'm being appreciative that you've worked so hard on this that you're like, I need a break from stuff. So over to you. Where can we find your stuff? I've got a website, kierangillen.com, and that links to most things. I do a newsletter like any week I have a comic coming out, I'll probably do it. And some weeks when I don't, I'll plug anything that's happening in the various forms. I'll write essays. I've got a review of Trophy Gold I've got to finally polish up. You know, so that's a really good way. If you like my nonsense, that's the best place to get my nonsense. Die will be coming out. It's at the printers at the moment, so yeah. when it will actually ship. Yeah, I think it'll be in shops by April. So it'll be, it'll be like it'll be in people's hands. I think by March, uh, at least in, the, in Europe. Okay, don't quote me on this. Oh, I don't, uh, don't worry. This, when this goes out, will be at a certain time as well. But I'll try and if I can schedule it so it does come out around this time, then I will definitely do that. So don't worry. About that. But it'll hopefully be with people soon. Uh, it's available to pre-order already. Otherwise. Comic shops and game shops can order it as well. I'm only writing, I've only got one comic coming out at the moment. I'm writing a major crossover for the X-Men at the moment called mm. Sins of Sinister. But I do a book called Immortal X-Men, which is fun. And games-wise, like, I, I'm ambling around and writing some more dice scenarios. I've got a, an idea for another another die book, which involves me actually... There's a whole region rules in die in the manual, which is kind of vestigial. That's deliberately one of the things I was like, I could do a lot more on this or just stop and go outside. Mm. Possibly picking that up. I said, like, there's a couple of die scenarios I want to write. There's a hex crawl one about, so the concept is a group of people who haven't got over um, 
their partners and they're, they're drinking in the bar all the time in different ways. So everyone's got their own kind of like messed up relationship with X and they get dragged into this world by the one person who in the group is sick of it. <laughs> who of course secretly has a wor- even worse history. Yeah, of he, he, yeah, yeah. And of course it's called X Crawl. Ah, amazing. Uh, yeah. Yes. So it's part pun, <laughs> part genuinely emotional trauma. Well, Sarah goes. Um, and I'm, I'm fiddling around with some small games. You know, if I've got an HIO page, which I've done like my really kind of small like sketch games almost. Mm-hmm. Come dice with me, my come dine with me RPG. Yes. That's fun. But I've got a couple of things. I'm, I'm working on a in the night garden inspired RPG. It's wow. in about in the night garden <laughs> That's so meets. So different to die. <laughs> oh no, it's not. In the night garden meets uh, Cosmic Horror Apocalypse. As it's basically about the end of the world coming to this children's thing, and it's really ritualized. Like it starts with a map building game, and by the end of the game, I want people to burn the map as the world starts falling apart. So like I'm, I'm playing around with this, like. You know what I mean? I write stuff and I've got a game of, I've almost got the point where I might release it to people to play test mm-hmm. about um, how the aliens do it. And it's basically a, a Brindlewood Bay hack where um, you play naive, sincere, but deeply ignorant aliens who are trying to work in a very repressed society, trying to work out how sex works in that way. So basically you, you, or you generate random body parts or and like tentacles and psychic fields <laughs> and you and wait and then you try to work out how sex may work and then you roll dice to see how true it is and you carry on and, until they're all... So it's, it's it's essentially about imagining queerness and how identity and bodies of it are our own. But it's also quite quite sincere. You know what I mean? So these are all really small little sketch games like, but I don't feel I'm doing anything as big as die for a long time yet. And that's fair. No, I wrote an Apocalypse Key scenario which is coming out... Yeah. Uh, as part of the Kickstarter goals, which is called uh, the Company of Gentry, it's about evil fae fracking uh, the UK for magic. Oh yeah, no, Apocalypse looks incredible. I'm so really excited to get my PDF of that. So, oh yeah, of course, exciting for that as well. Wow, I mean, lots there for people to digest. But honestly, <laughs> I, I, I'm thank you so much, Kieran. I think I, if people haven't read Die the Comet or the RPG, I highly recommend it just because it's it, for me touched on so many things that I really enjoyed about role playing. And it, I think it revealed a lot of stuff, so I think it is definitely an, an asset to gaming. So I just want to say thank you and thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you so much. It's been a delight. I'm hoping to do more of these special Q&A bonus episodes in future, including Q&As on the one shots we run here at What Am I Rolling? If you have a question or think of an RPG designer you'd like to see interviewed on this podcast, let us know. Our email address is whatamirollingpodcast at gmail.com. And that's it. Great. See you next time.